Father, we are thankful for this morning. We're thankful that we have the privilege of gathering, looking at your word today, of uh, hearing from your spirit. Uh, We pray that we would um, come to understand your word. We'd be thankful um, for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us, um, the truth to us. Um, We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, as we continue, we're looking at the Song of Solomon. You all know that um, the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, depending on um, how the version calls it, um, and, and the reason I say that is if you look at verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, some people will say, call it the Song of Songs, or some people will call it the Song of Solomon. Um, Either way, uh, this seems to be, seems to be another, yet another writing of Solomon, um, who is, writes a lot of our wisdom literature, as you know. Um, we usually land this in the wisdom literature tradition. And, and again, we're asking a question not, how do we come to understand the Song of Solomon in all its fullness, but um, in what way does this contribute to the storyline of the Bible? Here's what I want to answer in part. Um, None of the wisdom literature in one sense really contributes much to the development of the story from creation to fall to restoration, if you will, or redemption and the consummation of all things. Um, However, it does talk about the life of God's covenant people living in the land together. And and then it comes to the question of um, what does it mean for us as God's covenant people to live um, really much like Israel in the wilderness waiting for the promised land right? That's sort of where we are. So, so what, is it, what does it look like for us to live that way? Now, the Song of Songs became a book um, that was read during Passover week. So I, I, I made the comment about their, these five festal garments, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, or, well, Lam- Lamentations, etc., um, which I think we'll look at Lamentations next week, but um, I'll have to look and make sure. But <clears throat> When we look at these particularly texts, they're, they're read during the festivals of Israel. This particular text, Song of Songs, was read um, during Passover week. Now, scholars argue about, like, when did we start reading this during Passover week, or when did the Jews start reading this during Passover week? Um, and they'll say, for sure, by at least the 7th century A.D., um, they were reading it regularly at Passover week. So you guys understand, when, when did the Christian... Um, church begin in earnest as far as the coming of Christ, death, resurrection. I mean, in one sense, I could say the Christian church began in earnest in the garden, but in the sense of the coming of the Christ, death, resurrection, when does that happen? What century? This shouldn't be a trick question. Century? Christ came in what century? You guys don't know? First century. So, what is called the first century? He dies in either 30 or 33 AD. Um, yeah, he's born Josiah in the first century BC, right? So he's born around 4 BC to 7 BC, somewhere around there. But, um, but the, his ministry, life, death, resurrection, that we generally, that most of what we read about, the material we read about, falls somewhere between 27 and 33 AD, depending on who you're talking to. So he resurrects um, 
between 30 and 33 AD somewhere, either 30 or 33 AD. And the Christian church, if you will, begins um, as this movement within Judaism um, and splits off at some point or rather is chased out um, over, the over the following decades. So when I say the Jews begin reading the Song of Songs during Passover week by at least the 7th century AD, we understand that this is a solidified practice after um, Christ has come, right? It's possible uh, that it was a practice prior to Christ's coming. But scholars debate how much it was a common practice, common practice or how much it wasn't. Um, most standard Reformation-era commentaries. Have you guys read any old commentaries? Has anybody ever tried to read? Have you guys read any commentaries? Maybe I should ask that. Um, most people don't, and that's fine. Uh, but generally, when you're in seminary today, you're just basically pointed at modern commentaries. Right? So if you go to seminary, it's like, did you read D.A. Carson's commentary? Did you read Tom Schreiner's commentary? These guys are all alive, right? Or Bible college. Either one. Those are the commentaries you're pointed to. You're not pointed to many older commentaries. Let's say pre-modern commentaries. Um, so you're not pointed back to it. Has any, have you read Matthew Henry? Have you read Matthew Poole? You guys, you guys see those sets? Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole? Yeah, well, they're, what are they, about 1800s? Yeah. Um, you go back and read much older commentaries they're going to tend to take a different approach to these texts than the modern ones. Um, so if, if the approach that the Jews use um, and are using in the first several centuries A.D., where they're reading it at Passover and seeing it as an allegory, they're seeing Song of Songs as an allegory, um, that's the same approach you see, for example, the Reformation writers take. So if you go read any Reformation period author, they all see Song of Songs as an allegory. I point that out only because if, if there are some today in the modern period that if I say Song of Songs is an allegory, you're gonna say, that's liberal, right? You're allegorizing scripture, liberals do that. Well, actually all the Protestant reformers did that, um, as did most of the medieval church fathers and ancient church fathers and Jews. Um, so like, it's not, I, I, let's not say it's liberal. The question is whether it's the right approach to that, the particular text or not. Um, what, here's how Israel saw it. They believed, they believed it told the story um, beginning with Israel coming out of the Exodus. That Song of Songs is telling the story beginning with Israel coming out of the Exodus um, to Israel's Messiah coming. So just hold your hand in Song of Songs 1 and look over at Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2. The word of the Lord, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. How is Israel spoken of in the Exodus? 
How is she spoken of? No, that's exactly right. She's being spoken of as a young bride, right, as she comes out. Like, essentially, um, I married you. I covenanted with you. I married you. I took you as my bride, um, and I brought you out. Just, just to see that a bit more, look at Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. Language you may have read right over in the New Covenant a whole bunch of times. And look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 32. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Again, we're at the Exodus, right? And the Mosaic covenant. My covenant that they broke, that's coming made at Sinai, though I was their what? Their husband, declares the Lord. Right? Um, it's the same kind of language, this marital um, language uh, or betrothal language between uh, where, where God is the husband and Israel is the bride or the wife. Are you guys tracking with me? Um, that's the language that you consistently see um, in the Old Testament with regard to the relationship between God and Israel. That when he enters a covenant with them, he covenants with them um, like a husband does with a bride or a wife. Um, so you see that again and again and again. So the way the Jews approached this text was they said the Song of Songs was really a love song uh, between God and Israel. And that, that, it's, that it's, an, it's an idealized, essentially, it's a kind of idealized um, song of love, the song of songs, the greatest of the songs of love, um, between Solomon and one of, and one of his brides, because um, remember he has a lot of them, between Sol Solomon and one of his brides, and that's ideal, from the perspective of the bride, by the way. From the, if you read the Song of Songs, it's really told from the perspective of the bride. But it's, it's this song, the song of all songs between Israel and God, or Israel is the bride, God is the groom, where Israel's singing about um, God's love for her and her love for God. But it's idealized as this relationship, this intimate marital um, relationship between God and his bride. Um, and so that's, that's how they're going to they're going to tend to approach this text. And they're going to say that it starts with really Israel coming out of the Exodus and goes through five different periods, um, even the Roman conquest, all the way to Israel's Messiah coming. So look at Song of Songs 8.5. And th this, by the way, I'm talking about when you're reading Jewish writers, Jewish commentators. If you go read like a conservative, uh, when I say, I should change my language. When I say conservative Jew, actually, if you go to a conservative Jewish synagogue, they're very liberal. So um, I don't, when I say conservative Jewish, I mean Orthodox Jews, right? They still, hold, they still believe the Bible's the Old Testament's true, those kind of Jews. Um, don't be confused, by the way. There are Reformed Jews, liberal. Conservative Jews, liberal. 
Orthodox Jews, conservative. You guys follow me on that? And hold to the Bible, okay? Um, the Orthodox Jews, if you go read an Orthodox Jewish commentator, he's still going to hold this kind of a view of Song of Songs, generally. And he's going to say that you're moving from the Exodus through five periods until you get to the Messiah, right? So where's the coming of the Messiah? Look at chapter 8 and verse 5. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. Then your mother was in labor with you. There, there she bore, who bore you was in labor. So here's this, um, here's this woman coming up, leaning on her beloved. Um, if you read the scene, if you read the Song of Songs, it's this story about this woman who wants to be with her beloved and can't, right? Until she finally is. And what Israel's essentially, the, the way that they're seeing this is that Israel is that woman who can't be with her her beloved, and now she finally is, so we, we're ending the Song of Songs, essentially the way the Jews would have read this, we're ending the Song of Songs with finally Israel leaning on her Messiah. You guys, you guys follow that? Sometimes you'll read these kind of Orthodox Jewish commentators in the book of Ruth or the book of Lamentations. I, got, I have two contemporary commentaries by Orthodox Jews, one on Ruth and one on Lamentations. You'll read them and you'll think, oh my gosh, you're so close. You're so close. They see it. They're looking at Ruth or Lamentations messianically. They're reading it Christologically. Um, and you're thinking, oh, if all, you know. So anyway, the, um, but this is how they tended to approach it. So when they would read through it on Passover week, they would get to the end of Passover week. And they would come to Song of Solomon chapter 8 and say, finally Israel is with her Messiah. Um. What you understand as Christians, why we would see that and go, don't you see it? Right? Um, so it's right in front of you. Uh, you're telling it every Passover. You're telling it. Um, so that's how they approached the Song of Songs. Um, they read it as an allegory of Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh being the husband, Israel being the bride, based upon these kinds of texts. So I want to show you how much this pervades um, the language, I showed you a little bit in Jeremiah, but let's look at Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 and why they tend to see the relationship between God and Israel as husband and wife this way. Verse 1. Now you're going to see in this one particularly why the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon would seem to them to be a song about God and his bride. Look at the language. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. Okay, who's, who's the one singing? Here. It's not the one who owns the vineyard. So let's ask this. Who's the one who owns the vineyard? God. Okay. God's the male who owns the vineyard. The beloved, the husband. So who's the one singing the love song for, his belov for her beloved? The bride or Israel, okay? Are you guys noticing the language? This sounds very much like the Song of Songs, right? Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. 
He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of, Ju men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So the language has sort of changed in the, in the song. You notice that you have a new singer. So in the first part, you have the, the bride singing, um, Israel singing about her beloved and what he's done. And then you have the husband or the groom singing. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it, for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you, what I will do to my vineyard, I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briar and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So this passage is comparing Israel to a vineyard that's not fruitful, right? Um, Jesus will pick this up in John 15. Just so you know, he'll pick this up in John 15 and say, I'm the true vine, right? My father's a vine dresser. And he's gonna say, I, he's taking, Israel was the vine, but it was unfruitful. And he's gonna say, I'm actually the true vine. I'm the one who's gonna bear fruit. Uh, you're the branches. Right, And so he's going to come after this. He's going to pick this language up. But what I want you to pick up about this is where Israel's comparing herself to a vineyard and God as the vine dresser and then the, or the owner of the vineyard. And then God is coming in as the owner of the vineyard saying, you've been an unfaithful vine, an unfruitful vine. But it's all couched as a song sung from uh, first, the first singer of it being um, the bride, and the second singer of it being the husband. You guys follow me on that, or the covenant God? Um, so it's not unusual. This is what I'm trying to get at. I know for us, um, reading songs allegorically like, is odd, but it's not unusual for them to have a song between God as the husband and Israel as the bride. That's normal kind of language for them. Um, so where they're singing to each other. Let, let's look at another place. Look at Ezekiel 16. Now this will be one where you're going to see Israel really condemned. Um, interesting language. I won't read the whole thing, but we'll look at it. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So Jerusalem's a way to speak about the people of God or it's, you know, it's the capital city, it's, it's the main place, about her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. I mean, that's this, he's being... Um, he's using some strong condemnatory language here. And as for your birth on the day you were born, you, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were 
cast out on the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Basically, like Israel's like this exposed baby. You guys know what exposure is? They would, have, they would give birth. They wouldn't care for the baby. They'd just throw it outside for the dogs to eat or whatever. Um, these kinds of things happened um, all through first century Rome, but it's happening centuries and centuries before that as well. So the Christians would actually pick up the exposed babies and take them in. Um, and the Christians were, were um, ridiculed for that. They would t- people would throw out their exposed babies. They would throw the babies out, and the Christians would go take them and uh, basically take them as their own and raise them. Um, they were also opposed to abortion, both abortion and exposure, in the first century AD. That's not something Christians started getting into at Roe v. Wade in the 1970s. That's like been the historic stance of the church um, all the way back in the Old Testament era. Now look, and when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Now listen to the language about Israel. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. So now Israel's being compared to this um, sexually mature woman, right, who's naked when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. In other words, what, what's he saying when he says you were at the age for love? What's he saying? You're old enough to be married, right? So Jared knows Jaylee's what? Four years away from the age for love, I suppose, and Jared's probably thinking maybe 10. But right? But, you know, you watch these young girls, they grow up into grown women, and they hit that point at their, their, that's the language, they're at the age for love. Now they're ready. This is what you talk about as a dad with daughters. You say, okay, now, now you're old enough that I would be okay with some suitor coming around to, to talk to you. You guys follow me on that? Assuming it's the right suitor, right? Uh, <laughs> you understand. So there's these, this, she's, she's hit that age, now, no, this is Israel he's describing here. Um, so he says, you're the age of love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. What's he done? What's God done? This is descriptive language of him doing what? He's chosen her his own, that you're my bride now, right? I've taken you as my bride. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed with you, you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing, clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. So he's describing this Woman who's grown up from infancy into a full-grown woman, ready for the age for love. He's described her in pretty graphic language about her sexual maturity, her breasts being developed, her being full-grown, beautiful, 
And he describes how he readies her for marriage and then provides for her. He beautifies her, cleans her with oils, covers her with, you, you guys following all this? Clothing, puts jewels on her, makes her beautiful, and then declares, you know, you're the most beautiful woman in all the land. This is really graphic, sort of um, intimate um, language about the development of this woman into a, to a woman who's ready and prepared to marry and who's beautiful and has been taken as a bride. Do you guys follow me on that? And this is God and Israel. He's describing his covenant with her. Um, look at verse 15. It gets worse. I won't read the whole thing, but you'll get it. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of, of my gold and of my silver which I'd given you and made yourself images of men and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. So it's like, <laughs> um, don't you know where I've brought you from? And what you, you took all that I had and you fashioned idols and you worshiped them. You understand what he's saying? He's calling their idolatry whoredom because he's saying um, I covenanted with you as a, with a bride and now you have gone after another husband you've played the whore to go after other gods to commit idolatry is to is is being spoken of here as spiritual adultery are you guys understanding the language okay um, look at Hosea Hosea <laughs> If you, you guys remember the story of Hosea, Hosea is supposed to go and do what? He's supposed to marry a Yeah, he's supposed to go take a whore as his bride. Right? Are you, are you following what's happening here? Just like God took Israel as his bride. Um, but, but look at what he'll, he'll say about her um, look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. What's the comparison? Why is, Isaiah, why is sorry, Hosea going to take a wife of whoredom and bear children of whoredom? Because why? Because Israel's being a whore. Um, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of to blame, however you say her name, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house 
of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord named, said to him, call her name No Mercy. It's a terrible name. <laughs> for, uh, for I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I'll have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horse or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I'm not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Boy, that takes us all the way back to Genesis 15. Um, shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So he's going to go on and talk about his divorce from Israel, and then his taking her back as his bride again. But the point I'm getting at is, no, notice the graphic language. I'm your husband by covenant, you're my wife by covenant, and you violated the covenant. And the language is graphic, even the children get named essentially by the violation of the marriage covenant and God's wrath with regard to that. Now he's going to divorce her, actually in Hosea. Um, he's, God's going to divorce Israel. And then he's going to go back and take her back as his bride. Um, so we, we look at this language all across the Old Testament. We see it in the prophets. It's typical language. Um, I'm going to argue um, we see it all across the New Testament as well. And that's because we see it beginning in Genesis. So you'll hear me, um, not this Sunday in the sermon. This Sunday I'll be dealing with God's covenant with Adam. Um, but next Sunday in the sermon I'll deal with um, marriage and the mystery of the gospel at the end of Genesis. That we get our first gospel message actually at the end of Genesis 2. Um, and that's where you see Adam taking a bride and that becomes a picture of God taking a bride or Christ taking a bride, his church. Um, which is what Paul's gonna tell us in Ephesians 5. He's gonna quote Genesis 2.24, Paul will in Ephesians 5 and say, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church, Genesis 2.24. And you're going to see that language go through so that you see Paul in, for example, 2 Corinthians 11 saying, I betrothed you to one groom or one husband, even Christ, and you, you, were, you, you basically played the whore. You were quick to run after other husbands, right? And you're going to see that language in, um, in the Gospels. What does Jesus say? He tells the parable of the ten virgins. You guys remember the parable? What are they supposed to do? What are the ten virgins supposed to do? Do you remember? Yeah, and they're supposed to get themselves ready. Always be ready for the wedding day. You never know when the groom's coming. Some of them got ready and some of them didn't. Right? Um, and he's saying that's, that's what a bride does. She's just constantly getting herself ready for the wedding day. And um, so Christ is going to compare himself to the groom and, and his people to the bride. And you're going to see that carry all the way through the book of Revelation, aren't you? The marriage supper of the lamb, where he comes for his bride. Or in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, adorned as a bride. 
prepared for a husband. So this is the kind of language, what I'm saying, that runs from Genesis through Revelation. Just runs all the way through. So when we come to a book like the Song of Songs, we understand why most of the history of the church read this as that kind of book. As a book about um, uh, that, that's a love story between um, Solomon and a bride um, that's actually a picture of um, God or his Messiah and his people or his church. Um, that's how they read it. Um, all right. Even the graphic stuff, you're like, but it gets graphic with breasts and all. Yeah, so does uh, so do other passages I just showed you, right? Um, all right, so, however, there are faithful commentators, and I'm, this is all just a setup to look at the text. Um, there are faithful commentators, many faithful commentators. They do not believe the book is an allegory. They don't believe Song of Songs is an allegory. Mostly modern commentators. Um, but a song about the covenant of marriage and intimacy. Now, here's what I also want to say about these guys. I am not talking about the shock jock pastors who have like marriage conferences around the Song of Solomon and, talk, and use it like it's some kind of graphic sex story or song, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about good, mature, grown men who are commentators. They're not, they're not you know... Um, they're not like sanctified adolescents. You know what I mean by that? Like a lot of men today, they've just become sanctified adolescents. They aren't grown men. So they're like, they're Christians, but they're basically never willing to grow up. Um, that's what I constantly tell youth groups. Youth, youth pastors need to present the picture of a grown man, not the picture of a sanctified adolescent, because we're not, we're not hoping for our children to grow up into sanctified adolescents. We want them to grow up into grown-ups. Well, there's a lot of pastors who are basically sanctified adolescents, for lack of a better term. They, they use this kind of a text um, to titillate the audience and, if you will, and make to be humorous and sexual and basically turn it into a book akin to some kind of like Christian version of a romance novel. You guys know what I'm saying there? Okay. Um, the world has their sexual perversion and we've got a holy version of that. That's not what this book is, right? So when I say faithful modern commentators, I'm talking about grown-ups who read the text as a, yes, there is language of sexual intimacy here, but the point is really about, um, they're going to say, is really about the fact that there's a kind of covenant bond in marriage um, to which every bride or groom, every husband and wife are exclusively attentive. They, they rejoice in one another. They love one another. They delight in one another. Um, and so that's how they're going to say the language is to be read. So this is actually, they're going to say, a wisdom book to say about marriage and the covenant of marriage and our dedication to the covenant of marriage. Right? So that's what a lot of modern commentators are going to say. Um, they note the similarities between the song and something like Genesis 2, 24 and 25. When Adam sees Eve, and what does he do? What does, he, what does Adam do? God presents Eve to him, and what does he do? Anybody remember? He sings. He sings, basically. 
he at least starts to write poetry. If you will, the first poem that's ever written is by Adam. When his naked wife is put in front of him, he breaks out in poetry. <laughs> that's just what he does. It's remarkable. It's the first time we see that kind of thing in Scripture. And so he kind of sings or, or becomes poetic. And then here the two of them are. They become one flesh. They're united um, we're told by Malachi 2 that's the result of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit actually, this is remarkable, we don't talk enough about this, but when two people become married, the Holy Spirit is, is there uniting them in a covenantal bond. Um, and so that, that, that's happened with Adam and Eve, and they're naked and not ashamed. And so what, what they're saying is there's a kind of a marital bond and commitment and intimacy and rejoicing in one another in Genesis 2, and then that's being picked up in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. So that's what a lot of guys will say. They'll also say that it's, it's akin to the kind of wisdom literature you see in Proverbs 5. So now notice what modern commentators are saying. Um, when you come to Proverbs 5, Solomon is using very sexual language there. So just let's look there um, because I just don't want you to just run right past the modern commentators either. I want you to hear why this can be difficult. Um, look at verse 1 of Proverbs 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Here, here's what he's saying. You look at that forbidden woman. When you're saying her lips drip honey, it's like you just want to, you, you've, you've got to have her. You, you, she, looks, she looks great to you, very appealing. She's sort of calling out to you in some way. And he's saying that's what the adulterous woman's like, but actually she's just death. <laughs> she looks really good, but she's going to kill you, right? Um, so he goes on, and now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Now he goes on, but go down to verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. What's he referring to there? Be faithful to your wife. Be faithful to your wife. You're thirsty? You understand the thirst he's talking about? It's a thirst you think is going to be answer, answered by the adulterous woman. You're thirsty? Go to your own well and drink. Right? Don't go, don't go quench your thirst with that adulterous woman. No matter how she, good she looks, no matter how sweet the water you think is going to taste, it's bitter as wormwood. It's going to go down and rot your stomach, right? So go to your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let, yourself, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain, that's your wife, be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Uh, so notice this graphic language. You're supposed to be filled with delight by your own wife's breast. You're supposed to be intoxicated by her love, 
not by the love of the forbidden woman. He's going to go on to say that. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with, an, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Right? Why would you do that? Um, you're going to die. It's going to kill you. She's going to kill you. She may look attractive, but she's going to rot your bones from the inside out. You know, so, so rejoice in your youth. But here's what the modern commentators say. The marriage covenant is also spoken of with great intimacy, vulnerability, nakedness, um, and, and with very highly sexualized language um, because it's, you're, you're focused on one woman. She's focused on one man and you're committed to one another and you rejoice in each other and you don't let your heart wander off toward other people. You guys follow me on that? Um, and so, so Solomon writes that kind of language with regard to the wisdom of marriage in Proverbs 5. So why is this song not about the same kind of thing? So do you guys hear the two schools of thought? Do you see why they both hold some um, good points, right? Um, let, me, let me push into that school of thought, the modern one, a bit further. Um, look at Sol Song of Songs, verse 1. The Song of Songs, 1-1. One, one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Now there are two major readings um, and, and I'm talking about among the modern commentators who tend to see this as about covenantal marriage and intimacy. There are two major readings they take on it. Um, they, so I say from the perspective of the more literal reading. I put literal in quotes here because I, I want to be really careful about the use of that word. So I, I want to say something about that briefly. When we say grammatical and historical, okay, hermeneutics, what we mean is you want to follow the grammar of the text, the syntax. So if, if the preposition is but, um, then you understand there's probably an adversative or contrastive sense happening there when you're reading it. So you're going to follow that, okay? If the preposition is and, then it's probably, it may not be adversative or contrastive in the connection. You guys follow me on that? If the, if the preposition, if it's, if it's, um, so that, then you understand you probably have some kind of purpose or result clause. And so you're just looking at the grammar and trying to understand grammatically how is the argument flowing. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so we look at that. That's good hermeneutics. You need to look at the grammar. We're looking at it historically. When we say historically, we want to understand its context and what's happening. Now the historical part, scholars are more or less committed to only because if you have to know all of, for example, the century in which the Song of Songs is written, if you have to know all the history about that to read the book appropriately, you, we have a real problem because we don't know much history about the period. It's real scant evidence. You guys follow me on that? But still, there's an attempt to try to reconstruct the history of the era as much as we can. But we will, even with historical um, data, we want to be careful because we don't want to create a canon um, where it's like, well, we read Josephus, or we read Eusebius, or we read, you know, this thing about first century history, and now we have reinterpreted the New Testament, or we've reinterpreted this book in the Old Testament on the basis of, of reading that historical text. You, you see what the problem would be? Now you have a canon that actually, outside, you have some, some rule outside of Scripture that controls the reading of Scripture. Um, so, I read the Epic of Gilgamesh, and there's some similarities between that and Genesis, and by the way, there are, and you ought to notice them. 
but you can't let that control the reading of Genesis. You understand the distinction there? We are learning something about the ancient Near Eastern views of things. Um, and so that's helpful, but you have to be careful with the historical. But we still look at that. So grammatical, historical, and then you hear this word literal. You guys hear that thrown out a lot? We say literal, what do we mean? Um, a lot of people think literal means um, you read it in the most obvious sense that you can read it on the plain reading of the text. So you hear things like, the plain thing is the main thing, or something like that. You guys heard those kind of phrases? The difficulty with that is that's not actually what we mean by literal. By literal, we mean literary. In other words, what's its genre? So you read if the plain meaning is, what, what's the plain meaning, if you will, according to that genre of literature? So when you read his, history, you, you're a narrative, a story, historically, you know there's a particular way to read that. There are certain rules for reading that. You guys know this because if you read a newspaper or a poem, you don't read them the same way because they're different kinds of documents, different kinds of literature. Read a novel. You guys follow me on that? Okay, so if I read a historical narrative, I read it one way. If I read a poem, I read another way. Um, if I read apocalyptic prophetic literature, I read it another way. And so we're looking at the genre. Here's the difficulty with a literal reading of the Song of Songs. It's a song with highly stylized language. And so we have to read it as such. Um, so we have to be careful about it. So when I say literal, every one of these camps is trying to read this according to its literary genre. Do you understand that? I'm talking about, when I say every one of these camps, I mean the, 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 the adult camps. That I, right? So... Every, every adult in the room is trying to read it according to its literary genre, but they're going to have um, different takes on what's happening according to its literary genre. They're all trying to read it as a song. They understand it's not to be read like a historical narrative. Um, but some of them are going to do that in an allegorical sense. This is God and Israel, or God and his bride. And some of them are going to do that in a non-allegorical sense. This is Solomon and his bride. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, so the question is, is it allegorical, God and his bride, or is it non-allegorical, Solomon and his bride? And that's a potential answer, Ron. Yes, right? And so um, that, that, <laughs> there is, there's something to be commended there. All right, so I want to talk just about the two non-allegorical views. So I say more literal, but really what I mean is the two non-allegorical views. Um, the, the, the views largely agree the teaching of the book is that the biblical covenant of marriage promotes intimacy and love that is pure and enduring and whole. And that's what it's really about. It's wisdom literature about the biblical covenant of marriage. Um, that's what the, the more, the non-allegorical kinds of um, commentators are going to say. That's what it's about. Now, they're, they're, they're going to be, they're going to say, obviously, that means that a man has to remain committed or a woman has to be remain committed to that. They're going to tend to agree this is told from the perspective of the woman. Now, I want you to understand how the Hebrew canon works. Um, what, what book follows Proverbs 31? 
What's that? The book of Ruth. And then what book follows that? Song of Songs in the Hebrew canon. And there are a lot of commentators who don't think that's unimportant because the end of Proverbs 31 is picking up this language of the excellent wife who can find. That language then is actually really only used again in the book of Ruth. And so the, the, the point most scholars think is that actually Ruth is the woman of Proverbs 31, at the end of Proverbs 31. It's her. And, and the Song of Songs is then a picture of, of how the, the excellent wife or woman um, stays devoted to her, to her bridegroom. The excellent bride stays devoted to her bridegroom. And, you know, you get this language of the covering of the garment, of the corner of his garment. Remember that kind of language? And so, by the way, that's going to be an allegorical and non-allegorical schools of thought on this book. That Song of Songs is now told from the perspective of the woman who is the devoted bride. Either devoted to her husband and it's non-allegorical, or devoted to her husband and it is allegorical of Israel being devoted to Yahweh. You guys follow me on that? Okay. Um, all right, so let's, let's, let's talk about um, those two views. The two views, probably can't even see my notes very well. Uh, well I noticed I say the two views diverge on how they, sing the, how they see the song. Um, one sees the song as about a woman taken into Solomon's harem, yet she already has a lover, a shepherd, who can't, and I'm going to show you this one in a minute, who can't get to her because she's in the palace. Um, she is tempted by the power, wealth, and pleasures of King Solomon. So in, in one view, Solomon's actually held out as a, the temptation of a, of a lover other than her bridegroom. And she's resisting him. You guys, you guys follow me on that? She has a, a, hus a bridegroom already. He can't get to her because she's this young virgin who's been taken into Solomon's palace and is being groomed to be one of Solomon's wives, and, um, and she's being tempted to go with this glorious king rather than her shepherd bridegroom who can't get to her. And the way it gets resolved is she resists King Solomon throughout and keeps her focus on her bridegroom. And at the end, he shows up. The, the shepherd bridegroom gets to her and takes her, and now they're with each other. And she's, she has... In this accounting of the song, she has resisted false lovers and kept herself only to her bridegroom. Um, sounds like it, but it may actually be the plot of Song of Songs. Yep. And then the other one, the other one sees the song as about a woman who idealizes her lover as if he's Solomon. In other words, they both agree that her lover is not actually Solomon. Um, but bo both of the non-allegorical interpretations say her lover's not actually Solomon, but in the, in the one, Solomon's a competing lover whom she resists until her real one comes. In the other, her real lover is idealized as if he's Solomon. So he's, he's, so, he's so amazing that he's basically, in her mind, he's as great as Solomon. You guys follow me on that? Now, why does that matter? In either case, what you have to understand, who is King Solomon? 
He's the king of the united monarchy of Israel. He's gloriously powerful and he's wealthy and, you know, if you will, he's the desire of all women, right? Um, who doesn't want to be King Solomon's wife, right? And have the entire ki kingdom and have the wisest man on the planet whom all the nations stream to learn from. Do you guys follow me on that? Um, who even at, at one point leads temple worship in a way that you go, wow, wow, this man is godly and wise and glorious in every regard and powerful and rich. What woman doesn't want him? And apparently incredibly good looking. So he's got it all, right? What's that? And now you have to share with a thousand other women, yeah, uh, approximately. So, um, so in, in either case, this shepherd boy is actually her bridegroom. And in one case, there's a competition between Solomon and, her, and the shepherd boy, and she chooses the shepherd boy. In the other case, the shepherd boy is idealized as being Solomon. You, you guys follow me on that? Okay, so let's, let's look a little bit at, at the context of the shepherd's view um, and how it's laid out. I'm going to take, I, I actually think that the non-idealized view is probably a better reading of the text, but it, next week I might have a different view. So um, don't, don't quote me on it. So I'll give you the non-idealized view um, really first. Uh, so notice that first they're going to start with the temptation of Solomon's harem. And, and I want to look at this, and then I want to consider Esther 2 really briefly. So the Song of Songs which is Solomon's, and the, 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 notice we're starting with the temptation of Solomon's harem. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. So draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Um, the, the notion is, is that, that um, the way this works, if you guys are familiar with Esther, you guys remember what happens in the book of Esther? In Esther 2, Esther's brought into the, to the, the king's harem, isn't she? As a young virgin. And then what happens in the king's harem to Esther? She's, prepared for the king. She's beautified and prepared for a while, for some time. And then what happens? The king will select some woman from the virgins. They'll be brought in front of him. He'll select one. He'll keep her for a night. And then he'll send her back to the harem, and maybe she'll get invited back again. Maybe she won't. And the, the, all the women want to get invited back again. In the case of Esther, the king falls hard for her, and, and basically, it basically takes her as, his, if you will, his main bride. You guys remember that, okay? The case of Esther. Um, and so all the virgins are essentially in Solomon's harem, um, and the, the language here is essentially your love is better than wine is, is in Hebrews, like your love making is just the, the story of Solomon as this notoriously great love maker, right? He's just, all the women want to get to the king's chambers. All the virgins want to go there to be with this notoriously great love maker and, and, and be taken by him. Um, so they can be with him. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Um, 
Now she's speaking. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They, they made me keep the uh, keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? Then he speaks. Uh, so they, they, this, this back and forth. Now, um, she's, she's, the, the way they're going to say that is either A, I want you to hear this, either A, her groom is being idealized as Solomon, or B, she's been taken into the palace of Solomon and she is being tempted by him. To, to abandon her own groom. Do you guys follow me on that? Her true love. Um, so this goes on through 2.7. Now let's look at the arrival of her true love. Everybody is going to essentially agree this is the shepherd boy that she loves. Um, verse 8 of chapter 2. The voice of my beloved, behold he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. You hear what they're trying to, what they're saying here. Her, her, her shepherd boy that she loves is actually outside the palace walls gazing in, but he can't get in. Uh, my beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away, for behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. And so he's going to go on. Um, but he's not going to quite, he's not going to get to her. Um, she does say, if you, look at the, if, you, if you look at the end of chapter 2, um, he's, he, there's the speaking going on. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadow flees. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag, stag on cleft mountains. On my bed by night, I sought him who loves, whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the street and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. And the point here is that they're saying is that this is basically, he can't get to her. And so now she's just um, pouring out her desire to have him and can't find him anymore because he can't get to her. You guys, you guys follow what they're saying? She's been taken into Solomon's harem and he can't, she can't get to her beloved. He can't get to her. And so now she's basically singing about the fact that, that he's, he's nowhere to be found. I don't, I don't know where he is. He's not here. Um, Solomon then arrives in verse 6 of chapter 3. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh, with myrrh and frankincense? Remember, she can't find him, and now there's someone coming up from the mountains with all the fragrant powders of a merchant. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with a sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the woods of Lebanon. He made it posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple, its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding 
on the day of the gladness of his heart. Um, now, the, the idea is going to be that Solomon is going to arrive and for the next several chapters, he's going to woo her. Okay, in the idealized view, um, she's looking for a shepherd boy who can't get to her. He can't get to her. She's looking for him. In the idealized view, he comes as Solomon and then speaks sweetly to her. So chapter, um, if you will, three, especially chapter four, when he's going to say, behold, you're beautiful, my love, behold, you're beautiful, that this is actually her shepherd boy husband who's gotten to her idealized as Solomon, and now the next several chapters, they're singing to each other. You guys, you guys follow me on that? Okay. In the view that actually um, she's not able to get to her shepherd boy or her husband, this is actually Solomon coming to, to, to try to woo her, to try to win her over. Um, now um, we're going to see what they call the arrival of the woman. It goes all the way through chapter 8. So go all the way to chapter 8. Um, and, and you get to this. Um, verse 5, who is that coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? And what they're saying is this is now either that, that, that we all are, no matter what scholar you read, they're going to agree this is now the woman with her beloved. She's now with her beloved, her bridegroom. Um, the question is, is this, was her, was her beloved being idealized as Solomon or was Solomon um, trying to woo her away from her beloved and she stuck with him? Either way, it's resolved in as much as she's now with her beloved. You guys, you guys follow? And she's leaning on him. Um, this is also, by the way, where, if you're, where, I, where I told you, if, if you're a Jew reading the Song of Songs in Passover week, you think this is, the, this is where Israel's now with her Messiah. And if you're, a, if you're a Christian interpreter, you're essentially saying, uh, who takes it allegorically, you're essentially saying the same thing. The people of God are now with her Messiah, right? Um, look, look what it goes on to say. Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave, the flashes of the fire, the very flame of the Lord. Um, the seal upon your heart and the seal upon your arm is this notion that uh, both internally and externally I'm marked off as belonging to you. You, you might think about it a little bit like um, when you get married in the marriage covenant. You take vows and if you will, there's a seal upon the heart that's happening. And then you put on a ring, and now there's a, there's a seal upon that arm or the hand that's happening. Um, so this is a sign and seal of your marriage covenant. You, you guys follow me on that? This is what you're committed to. Um, they, they're taking it upon the arm externally in a different way than we do in a ring. But this is, this is, a, this is a culturally a rough equivalent of that. You go to a marriage vow, you take a seal upon your heart, and then you pick a seal upon your external man so that you rem you're reminded I'm in a covenant, right? Um, and others know you're in a covenant as well. Many waters cannot quench love. Notice the kind of description of love here. 
Um, it comes from the flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench it. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love um, all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly destroyed or, or despised. Um, and what a lot of folks are saying is, um, in the shepherd view, what they're saying is, is that actually, no matter how much wealth Solomon could have offered me, no matter how many other things he could have offered me, it's, it wasn't worth trading out the love of the covenant bond of marriage for. That's what a lot of these scholars are going to argue. Yes, sir. That's exactly right. That's it. You guys know what Joel's referring to there? So let, let me show you that real quick. So because Joel picked that up, and I, that, that's exactly right. Um, look, look at look at two seven Song of Songs two seven. This is why this outline gets picked up this way. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles uh, or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So do you see that language there in two seven? Now now go to three five. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now go to 8.4. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Um, and they're saying that, that repeated phrase is how the song is being essentially broken out. So go ahead, Joel. Well, they're going to they're gonna walk from Israel as sort of an infant or the people of God in her infancy until she reaches full maturity and is sort of ready for her groom um, is the way they're going to tend to look at it allegorically. So, um, of course, she's not going to be an infant at the beginning of this, but it's, it's the virgin who's being prepared. It's the beginning. Um, so if you think about um, looking at the passage I, I picked up at the beginning from Jeremiah 2. That, here's Israel coming out of Egypt, and she's called a young bride. He's taken this young bride, right? And, and that's the kind of language, if you look at verse 10 of chapter 8, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. That this, this notion of I was a wall and my breasts were like towers is, is, is it's, it's language for... I, I was a full-grown, mature woman, ready for a groom. And then he came. Um, does that make sense? I had no breasts, right. I was young and had no breasts, and now I'm a full-grown woman and mature and ready uh, for a groom. 
So that, that's kind of the way they'll, um, they'll come at it. By the way, just to follow on, remember I told you about Isaiah 5? We'll look at verse 11 of chapter 8. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring forth for its own fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit two hundred. Um, and, and it seems to be that Solomon has this big, rich vineyard, um, but I'll, I'll take mine, not his. Um, she seems to be saying, which is interesting because again, you know, this sort of vineyard language is being brought up throughout, which you see being brought up. Uh, so it's, there's a lot of, is how you take the language, um, whether you're taking the, the language as her bridegroom is this shepherd boy being idealized as Solomon, or her bridegroom is the shepherd boy with whom Solomon is competing and she's staying committed to the marriage covenant because she sees it as more valuable than having all the riches and wealth and whatever it is that Solomon offers. She sees love, the, the covenant love of marriage as, 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 more, as superior. No matter which of those views you take, once you move into the allegorical approach to it, now you're asking the question, um, how is this about God and his bride, the, the people of Israel or uh, you know, and so now you're moving into that language. It works either way for the allegorical folks. Um, they'll, they'll tend to walk through it somewhat differently than the modern guys will. Um, here, here's what I want to say a bit about, it just, just to conclude. The, the biblical v- theological view of marriage and the mystery of the Gospels may be what I want to press on. At the end of the day, if you, ask, if you pressed me, should this be taken allegorically or non-allegorically? I don't know. I would probably lean toward taking it more allegorically because most of the history of the church, and if you read Orthodox Jews, if you read almost the entire history of the church prior to the modern era, they all took it allegorically. So it seems to me that probably the best way to take it based on that, but that doesn't solve the problem. You guys are saying, we don't solve interpretation of scripture by what was the most historically um, popular view. If I had solved the interpretation of text by what's the most popular view, as an American, I would have to be a dispensationalist because that's America's theology, right? But I actually think the dispensationalists are wrong in their interpretation of scripture. I don't pull that out to get into that topic, but just to say, if we just do it by what's most popular, that's not how you're supposed to interpret scripture. However, with that said, you also don't want to be quick to run away from what the greatest minds in the history of the church all agreed on. You guys follow me on that? Because there's some arrogance in that. There's some arrogance in that. So I I just want to be careful about that. Uh, I do think, regardless of whether you take the allegorical or non-allegorical view, regardless of which one you take, um, the bottom line is the way this ties to biblical theology remains the same, which is the marriage covenant was given to us for a purpose. It wasn't an end in itself. It had a use, right? The marriage covenant was given to us, and we're told this by Paul. Um, when he quotes Genesis 2, and he says, the man shall leave his father and mother and do what? Cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul then says, 
This mystery, now what is a mystery? Something that's been partially revealed, but not fully revealed. Now why can he say this mystery is partially revealed? Because actually marriage is compared between the covenant with God and his people in the Old Testament. Is it not? Yes, of course, we've seen passages like that. This mystery, partially revealed, now Paul's fully revealing it because he tells you in Ephesians 3 that's what he's there to do. This mystery is profound. What mystery? The partial revelation of the gospel that you get in Genesis 2.24. Might not have thought about that. You have a partial revelation of the gospel in Genesis 2.24. You have a holy, innocent, undefiled man who's put to sleep, same language in the Septuagint that John uses for the death of Christ in Genesis 2, he, the Septuagint language from the tr Greek translation of the Old Testament, same language used by John in, in, uh, for the death of Christ, same Greek word. He was put to sleep, his side was split open, and out of his split open side was taken his bride. His bride was created. Now, uh, you know, when a holy man dies and out of his opened side, a punctured side, comes a bride, you start to go, wow, that, that's interesting given what's talked about in the book of John and the punctured side of Christ and his sleep on the cross, etc. Um, and Paul, Paul's going to say, this mystery, Genesis 2, 24, and that the two shall become one flesh, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and his church. Genesis 2.24 does, right? Um, so the, the reason I come at that is because we need to understand whether we take an allegorical view of the Song of Songs or a non-allegorical view of the Song of Songs, the marriage covenant, its intimate bond, its exclusive devotion and love and intimacy was always given as a picture as, of the, the love between Christ and his church. That was always the purpose of it. Um, that you're exclusively committed by covenant bond to the bridegroom, Christ. Um, yes, sir. Oh, yeah. Not only single adults, there were probably more married adults that came to the series than there were people in the book. I haven't, I haven't read, he takes the non-allegorical view, doesn't he? Yeah, I thought, I thought so. I haven't, I haven't read his stuff on it, but I, I thought he took the non-allegorical. So, um, yeah, it tends to be a popular series when it's done. Uh, not always for good reasons. So, I... <laughs> I just want to, 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 to get you guys to understand that. Now, you might say, I'm deeply unsatisfied with the fact that you didn't resolve for us whether it should be taken allegorically or non-allegorically. I'm dissatisfied with it too. So, there you go. Uh, <laughs> such is life. All right. <laughs> that, that's, I, had, I don't, next week we're going to start um, Life in Exile. So, we'll start the books of the exilic period next week. So if you guys remember, we're still, we were in the pre-exile wisdom literature. Now we're going to the exilic period books, which are going to, first one up is Lamentations. 
So do Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And then that'll conclude the Old Testament. So I'm not saying we're going to do each of those in one week, but we're going to start in that section of the people in exile. If you remember Ezra and Nehemiah, they're coming out of exile. Um, at Daniel, they're, they're fully in it, right? So we'll look at those books starting, sorry, next week with Lamentations. So if you guys haven't read Lamentations, I encourage you to read Lamentations. Um, that's a book the church can use a big dose of, learning how to lament um, rather than pretending like there's nothing to lament about. Um, so we'll go to that, that starting next week. All right, let me, let me pray. Father, we're thankful uh, for the fact that you are a God who has covenanted with us. We know that covenant is of the essence of true religion, of the Christian faith. We are thankful that you um, have taken us as your own, and that we are yours and you are ours. And we pray that we would stay exclusively devoted in covenant love to you as you are to us. That we would look to Christ and no other. Um, we pray as well, Father, that you would help us to be devoted um, to the wives who you've given us um, in covenant marriage, that we would continually um, stoke the fire of our love for them, um, that we would not allow our eyes to be diverted um, toward the adulterous woman, that we would keep them uh, fully fixed on the wife that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.